0: Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade. Episode three. Ten.
1: Million.
2: George Berlin, November 1916. It is extremely difficult to assess how weak the enemy is, difficult, therefore, to decide how much we're willing to accept with regard to peace terms. In my view, the only way to subdue England and to prevent our isolation and insignificance is to unite Europe from its center, the German Reich, outwards, and to form, in time, a European United States. In this way, and this way alone, Europe can be saved. The alternative is mechanisation ad absurdum, more and more weapons, victories, sooner or later, for the other side.
0: London, Lord Northcliffe.
2: The Prime Minister has
3: asked members of his War Committee to give their views on the possibilities of a peace settlement. Anything is acceptable to ask with, except decisive action. My great fear is that out of an anxiety to stop the slaughter, or just as likely, out of laziness or incompetence, our masters negotiate a peace that's unfavorable, that leaves Germany as she was before, that isn't worthy of the sacrifice of our magnificent soldiers.
0: Washington. Colonel House.
4: I can't escape the conviction that Germany isn't yet ready to agree to peace terms that our country could recommend to the Allies. She sneers at proposals such as a, a league to enforce peace and still believes that large military armaments are needed for peace to be enforced. She hasn't, I fear, given up hope of winning in Europe.
0: Edith Wilson
5: Woodrow is weary and unwell, a reaction from the stress of the presidential campaign. On our return to the White House, the making of new appointments, preparing the annual message to Congress, dealing with a mountain of mail, but the gravest matter is the European situation. My dear one has begun turning over in his mind a proposal to make another mighty effort for peace for the whole world. He proposes in order to pave the way to write a note to the belligerents on both sides.
4: Colonel House, November 14th, 1916. The President and I had a long conference. He believes that unless a peace note is sent, the submarine issue will inevitably cause us to drift into war. In order, he thinks, to maintain authority and credibility, We ought to break off diplomatic relations with Germany. But before then, an earnest move for peace. In reply, I warn him, the Allies are beginning, at last, to achieve some military success. They'll see your move for peace as an unfriendly act whose chief purpose is to avoid a crisis in the U-boat controversy. It will seem, Mr. President as if you want to reward Germany for breaking her promises, says the President. Perhaps you could go to Europe a third time, visit England and France, sound them out, I reply. I'm perfectly prepared to, Mr. President, but I'd prefer to go to Hades.
2: Kurt Rietzler, Berlin Eventually, thank God, the enemy will suffer the same pain in the gut as we do. That will cheer us up. The Kaiser swims along in the wake of Ludendorff and Hindenburg. He lacks a will of his own. He is, perhaps, Wilhelm the last. The Chancellor says that Ludendorff and Hindenburg are keeping us safe for the present, but they are seriously threatening our future. Ludendorff is uncultivated. Like all soldiers, he has no concept of the difficulties of the politician's task. He's clueless. If let loose, he'd plunge Germany into an
5: abyss.
0: Washington. Edith
5: Wilson. November 25th. Woodrow isn't well. He's writing his peace note. Says it may prove to be the greatest work of his life. Colonel House, inevitably, is here to advise him.
4: Ah, Mrs. Wilson. Well? The President will tell you, I'm sure. Yes,
5: yes, you, though, can tell me what he won't tell me.
4: Mrs. Wilson, it's a wonderfully well-written document. But? He's making precisely the same mistake that he's made before, time after time. He presents the situation in such a way as to offend the allies.
5: Well, yes, but the, the causes allies are and pretty...
4: aims of the war, he says, are obscure. But to the allies, I'm afraid, they're all too clear. Germany began the war to make conquests, broke all international obligations and laws of humanity in pursuit of that aim.
5: But the allies, and the are allies, in sure response,
4: make... are finding to make another such war impossible. Break Prussian militarism, establish a permanent peace. That's the allies' claim.
5: But still. What he's written? A a wonderful document, you say? Yes. The securing of peace means so much to him.
4: And to me. My view is he shouldn't send the note. Not yet.
5: He should make your suggested revision.
4: Indeed. And wait a little while. Public opinion needs to be prepared, both in England and in France. In England, you know, the situation seems somewhat volatile.
3: No more, no more dumb parliaments. No more political jellyfish. No more indecision, no more humming and hawing. Action is required, energy. A new war executive determined to cross Germany. Fight to the finish, deliver the knockout blow. Lloyd George is the man. Asquith's days are numbered. The government is in turmoil and Balfour is in bed, suffering from influenza.
6: This dispute between the Prime Minister and Lloyd George with regards to posts and personnel, it seems to center around me. A change at the Admiralty is required, says Lloyd George, but the PM disagrees. And if the PM refuses to yield, LG will resign and cause the breakup of the government. So, I suppose I must write to the Prime Minister. I shall endorse LG's plan for a war cabinet and indicate that it would work in a more (laughs) satisfactory fashion if I was no longer First Lord of the Admiralty.
7: Margot Asquith. As soon as the little Welshman was put into the War Office, I knew it was our doom. I told Henry as much. In a war like this, the quarrels of allies, colleagues, admirals and generals make things almost hellishly difficult. But they're twice as bad when a character such as Lloyd George conspires against his own Prime Minister when he reveals every cabinet secret to the Henry-loathing Northcliffe Press with its 52 newspapers.
6: The PM has written back. He wants me to remain at the Admiralty. I shall tell him in reply that, though I'm grateful to him for his kind sentiments, I do not feel much inclined to change my views. Giving Lloyd George a free hand with the day-to-day work of the proposed war cabinet is a worthwhile experiment, and one which should be tried on terms which Lloyd George believes will produce the best results. We can't go on in the old way, and an open breach with Lloyd George won't improve matters. I'm, I'm still of the opinion, therefore, that my resignation should be accepted. But ill as I am, more than half an invalid, truth, the thought has not escaped me. With Lloyd George in charge of the war, Asquith may find it less than acceptable to continue as Prime Minister. The Times, December the 6th, 1916.
3: The domestic crisis has taken a new and sensational turn. We shall not affect to be either startled or dismayed by the kaleidoscopic sequence of events. If it was essential, as we believe, to make a fresh start in directing the war, Then, the quicker
7: and the more complete the change, the better. When a government falls in one week, one week, in truth five days, you may be quite certain that its overthrow is planned long, long before. Treacherous, despicable, ruinous LG is Prime Minister, and gargargon Balfour is at the Foreign Office... Alphor was surprised, I hear, and I can believe it, when Bonar Law came to him and conveyed the offer. He jumped up straight away. Well, he responded, you hold a pistol to my head. I must accept. I have gone through deep, deep waters since Saturday. The government at this most dangerous time in the life of the country has been smashed to atoms and replaced by men of the lowest possible type. Henry has been stabbed in the heart, and me, I'm an absolute wreck.
6: I'm sorry that Asquith is not still PM, but his nature is the very worst for the present crisis. He's an arbitrator, an eminently fair-minded judge, a splendid committee chairman, but I've never heard him originate ideas or make suggestions. He's incapable of doing anything more than providing the balanced view. As for Lloyd George, his attributes, it might be argued, go all the other way. His critics claim that he wants to be a dictator. I say, let him be one if he thinks he can win the war.
8: The crisis made David and me very bad-tempered and irritable, especially with each other. The incessant work and worry and excitement, together with the late nights and irregular hours and meals, were a trial to our nerves.
3: This is Francis Stevenson, Lloyd George's personal secretary, Lloyd George's mistress.
8: The day of his statement in the House was the worst. So much depended on it. Of course it was a great ordeal for him, his situation being so extraordinary, with nearly all the Tories backing him, a large number of Liberals in opposition, and his late chief sitting on the bench opposite. But he delivered the speech magnificently and it was splendidly received.
0: Washington, Count von Bernstorff. December the 9th. I've received a telegram from Berlin. The Imperial government has decided to make a peace offer. Following the fall of Bucharest, there's no risk. The government believes that such a move might indicate a sign of weakness, or result in a loss of prestige. And if the enemy rejects the offer, then the odium of continuing the war
2: will fall upon them. Kurt Rietzler, Berlin. The Chancellor's note, in essence, is as follows. The war, the most devastating ever known, has been ravaging much of the world for two and a half years. It threatens to bury Europe's great civilization. Germany and her allies took up arms for the defense of their existence and freedom of their national development. They have proved their indestructibility, and they expect success in the future. But they do not seek to annihilate their adversaries. They wish, rather, to stem the flow of blood, and to bring the horrors of war to an end. So they are ready to enter into peace negotiations. If, despite this offer, the struggle should continue, Germany and her allies solemnly disclaim any responsibility. Washington.
0: President Wilson, meanwhile, has been preparing a peace note of his own. But the imperial government isn't inclined to wait for him. The German offer isn't intended to shut out the president's own initiative. The notion, it seems, is to have two irons
2: in the fire. Berlin. The Chancellor's speech. His peace offer has made a big impression here, and he's in good spirits now. All reasonable people believe it to be nothing short of a masterstroke. It will have a powerful effect on domestic opposition and will surprise and embarrass the enemy. The Daily Mail.
3: The paper that is helping to win. December the 13th. 1916, impudent German peace trick. A proposal with a threat. Herr Bateman Holweg, in a statement to the Reichstag, said that Germany was prepared to negotiate and issued a threat that if the Allies would not listen, worse horrors would be let loose upon the world.
0: Francis Stevenson.
8: David makes his response. We accepted this war, he declares, for a particular objective, a worthy objective, and the war will end when that objective is attained. I hope, he says, that it will never end until that time. And we must ask ourselves, are we likely to achieve our objective by accepting the invitation of the German Chancellor to come to the table? There has been talk about proposals of peace. What are these proposals? There are none. To enter into negotiations at the invitation of a Germany which declares herself victorious, and to do so without any knowledge of the proposals she intends to make, is to put our head into a noose when the rope's end is in the hands of the enemy.
3: Affirms Lloyd George. The only terms on which it is possible for peace to be obtained and maintained are these. Complete restitution of conquered territories full reparation, effectual guarantees. Did the German Chancellor use a single phrase that would indicate that he was prepared to accept these terms? No. The very substance and style of his speech constituted a denial of peace on the only terms on which peace is possible.
8: December the 18th. War Cabinet agrees that a reply to the German note should refute the statements in the note's preamble. For example, Germany fighting in defense of existence and freedom and winning the war. And should state that a general offer of peace without defining terms is useless.
3: Now at long last, the great emergency that my country faces is being confronted with a spirit of energy and decision. The previous government lacked this capacity. It was careless, easygoing, absurdly optimistic. That's why we had to get rid of it.
0: Washington.
4: Colonel House. December 20th, 1916. The President has sent me the original draft of his peace note, with all the emendations. I've seldom seen anything he's written that contains so many changes. Unfortunately, although he's deleted the sentence that I'd thought would trouble the Allies, he's inserted another, which will prove more offensive still. In draft one, he argued that the war aims were obscure. Now, the President suggests, they're the same on each side. Wrong! And so unnecessary! It will only confirm the Allies in their belief that he doesn't understand what they're fighting for. This is the reason, the chief reason at least, why the President is so unpopular in the Allied countries. It's the reason why, in all likelihood, he'll never take the leading part in peace talks.
3: The President's peace note has been written and sent. And... (coughs) It reads, in part, The President suggests that an early occasion be sought to call out from all the nations now at war such an avowal of their respective views as to the terms upon which the war might be concluded and the arrangements which would be deemed satisfactory as a guarantee against its renewal or the kindling of any similar conflict in the future, as would make it possible, frankly, to compel... (laughs) Translated into plain English, gentlemen, let's get talking.
5: The president is indifferent as to the means taken to accomplish this. He would be happy himself to serve or even to take the initiative in its accomplishment in any way that might prove acceptable, but he has no desire to determine the method or the instrumentality. He takes the liberty of calling attention, attention to, to, the to the fact,
4: fact that, that the objects which the statesmen of the belligerents on both sides have in mind in this war are virtually the same. No, no,
9: no, no! In the measures to be taken to secure the future peace of the world, the people and government of the United States are as vitally and directly interested as the governments now at war. The terms upon which the war is to be concluded...
4: They are are not not
0: at liberty to suggest, but the President does feel that it is his right and his duty to point out their intimate interest in its conclusion, lest it should presently be too late to accomplish the greater things which lie beyond, and lest, more than all, an injury be done to civilization itself, which can never be atoned for or repaired. Embassy of the United
9: States of America, London. Dear House, the reaction here is surprise and sorrowful consternation. Me, I'm angry, as angry as hell. When the king read the note I'm told, the poor man broke down and wept. From the start, the British people said that Mr. Wilson didn't understand the issues at stake, and now their worst fears are realized. To place the Allies and the Central Powers on the same level, to give the appearance of being indifferent regarding the causes of the war, and to suggest that the two sides are fighting for identical aims is, at the very least, unfortunate. One might say, in truth, that the President's words are insulting.
3: Wilson can't end this war. And if he could, he'd come in just as we're finishing the job and claim all the credit. No, it's up to us. Victory, or the world will be at the mercy of the cruelest, most arrogant power in the entire history of despotism.
7: I go to Henry's bedroom. He's in bed, suffering from pure exhaustion and liver poisoning. Though Dr. Parkinson and I call it influenza, to prevent Northcliffe and his papers with the connivance of LG saying that he's a broken man and printing veiled suggestions that he has cancer. I start to talk about the President's note, but he tells me to stop. No more, please. It's too disheartening.
3: The Foreign Office has directed the press to use great caution when making comments on the President's latest endeavour and
9: not to question his sincerity. Could it be, some people here are asking, could it be that sooner or later the
4: United States
9: will decide to give support to Germany?
4: Ambassador Gerard writes from Berlin. Germany is keen enough on a peace conference, he says, because she wants to secure separate peace terms with France and with Russia. Then she'll finish off England through the use of her submarines, and after that, she'll take the scalps of Japan And guess what? France and Russia. The Allies, says Gerard, ought to remember what Ben Franklin said about hanging together or hanging separately. Berlin. Supreme
2: Army Command views peace discussions as doomed to failure. They base their judgment, as always, on what they read in the papers and their lack of political experience. So they're putting pressure on. They want a more intensive submarine war without delay and demand an immediate decision about an unrestricted campaign in the future. London. I
3: learn that Balfour is preparing a reply to the president's peace note.
6: Britain acknowledges, no, Britain welcomes, The president's declaration of interest of ardent, ardent interest in securing the future peace of the world, et cetera, et cetera, and then I think something on America's influence and resources, Britain's sympathy with big ideals of international morality. However, we have the utmost difficulty in accepting those passages in the note which might suggest that a post-war arrangement for improving international relations on a permanent basis would not be affected by the nature of the peace itself. Yes, good. International law and enlightened principles must have an effective sanction and Germany's aggression, or better, Germany's military terrorism and utter disregard for humanity, for treaties, and for the laws of nations must be shown to be unsuccessful. Otherwise, the president's lofty aims are destined for failure. something along those lines.
0: Washington, Count von Bernstorff. The imperial government's response to the peace note is in brief as follows. The president's proposal for a foundation on which to build a lasting peace is magnanimous. His note is written in a friendly spirit and points to a goal which is dear to his heart. The imperial government has the honor to suggest an immediate conference of delegates of the belligerent countries. Also the government thinks that the great work of preventing future wars cannot be begun until this conflict is over. The White House.
4: It's a perfectly friendly response, one might say, but not excessively enthusiastic. Yes, one might say that. It's a little short on specifics. A little. One expected to see a reference to terms and conditions. So that were a conference to go ahead, there'd be some items for discussion on the table.
0: Our demands, I believe, would have been very moderate. So much so, indeed, that they might have been interpreted as weakness.
4: Well, in that case, you should have asked for more. (laughs) At least by stating a position, one has a starting point. But listen, I can assure you, the conference wouldn't go ahead until confidential private negotiations had taken place. Uh, How private? On our side, just myself and the President. We're very good at keeping secrets. Of course. By the way, if it hasn't become apparent already, the president attaches comparatively little importance to the territorial side of peace conditions. Guarantees for the future are his particular concern. Your enemy has been arguing that if Germany is currently interested in peace, it's only so that she can resume hostilities when the situation is more favorable. <laughs> How could we Germany that? to give the appropriate guarantees. Disarmament by land and sea, a peace league, and so forth. Then your enemy's chief argument would be disposed of. We'd be making real progress. Yes. I must tell you, Bernstorff... The peace offer that your government made had a great effect here. It would be unfortunate if it appeared to be, well, how shall I put it? An empty gesture. Yes. A deliberate piece of theatrics put on for the benefit of public opinion, political maneuvering. Bernstorff, you, or your country at least, may think that American involvement isn't necessary for the peace process, that you and your enemy can manage between you. But let's face it, you haven't managed very well so far. We seem to be drifting. We're on the verge of war, but not a move is being taken towards the necessary preparation. We have no large guns, and even if we had, there are no men who are trained to handle them. No air service, no men to use it, and so on. If we enter the war, and it turns out disastrously, Woodrow Wilson will become one of the most discredited presidents in this country's history. Perhaps we never will enter the war. Perhaps the president is for peace at any price. I can't tell. something he's lost interest, lost drive. He doesn't want war. He can't achieve peace.
1: Peace has always been our prayer.
0: Episode 3 of Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade. Lord Northcliffe was played by Henry Goodman. Arthur James Balfour by Tim Woodward. Margot Asquith by Sophie Thompson. Francis Stevenson by Tuppence Middleton. Colonel House by Nathan Osgood. Walter Heinz Page by William Hope. Edith Bowling-Wilson by Laurel Lefko. Kurt Riesler by Gunnar Cawthry and Count von Bernstorff by Chris Pavlo. Enter the Peace Broker is a Chrome Radio production. It was directed by Elizabeth Rigby, with sound design by David Chilton, songs performed by Jessica Walker, with James Holmes on piano. The script consultant was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, and the producer was Katrina Oliphant. With thanks to the Rothermere Foundation,